Hi, I'm Ariel Swift. Welcome to A Swift Moment Podcast. Today we're continuing our conversation about COVID-19 with Tara Haley, a well-respected freelance science and multimedia journalist who specializes in reporting on vaccines, pediatric and maternal health, parenting, public health, mental health, medical research, and the social sciences. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, NPR, Scientific America, Medscape, Self, Washington Post, Political, Everyday Health, Slate, Frontline Medical Communications, and elsewhere. Tara co-authored The Informed Parent, an evidence-based resource for your child's first four years with Emily Willingham, and also recently published Vaccination Investigation, The History and Science of Vaccines. She has also written several science books for children. She blogs at her evidence-based parenting blog, Red Wine and Applesauce, and at the Association of Healthcare Journalists, and she's delivered a TEDx Oslo talk on why parents fear vaccines. She's received her master's in journalism at the University of Texas at Austin and previously taught at Bradley University and in Texas high schools. Tara often thinks of her journalism as a form of teaching by helping others understand science and medical research and by debunking misinformation about vaccines, chemicals, and other misunderstood topics. We are thrilled to have her with us. Let's begin. Welcome to A Swift Moment. I'm Ariel Swift again here with Cole Ramsey, and we have another special guest. This is Tara Haley. Thank you so much for joining us, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Tara, we're, I'm super excited to have you. I know Ariel is as well. I really wanted to have you on the show because you are excellent at nuance. Um, <laughs> and you are excellent at giving really balanced perspective. Uh, from my experience with you on, um, on information that's, that's out there about um, parenting, about um, having young children at home. And folks are really, really scared right now. They, they don't know what to do. They don't feel like there's a lot of clear direction. And um, folks in my parenting group specifically are really craving a little bit more direction and a little bit more understanding. Um, but from someone who um, is rational and reasonable and gets the fears that parents have, but um, also understands all of the science and everything uh, along those lines. So can you just start off a little bit by telling us uh, why you're qualified to talk about this today? Sure. Um, I'm a, a health and science journalist. I do not have any kind of clinical background. I'm not a healthcare provider. I, I've not gone to med school. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, I mean, I've taken public health classes before, but I, I don't have any special qualifications in that regard. So I'm always cautious not to give medical advice. And if I don't know something, I'll say, I don't know. Um, sometimes I might speculate, but I'll let you know that I am speculating. And, you know, sometimes when I speculate, that plus $5 will get you an overpriced coffee at Starbucks. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Um, but what I, what I do have that I'll, I'm very fortunate to have that most people don't is access to an incredible network of experts. Um, I spend my days interviewing epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors, uh, oncologists, OBGYNs, doulas, nurses, nurse practitioners, I mean, all across the board, uh, midwives, you know, I, I, I speak to these people for a living and I communicate their expertise to other people. I take the you know, the clinical terms and, and what they have to say, and I communicate that to others. So I may not have all of that body of knowledge in my head, but I have access to it, and I know how to translate it for people. So um, I sort of facilitate those conversations to people. And one of the key things I want to facilitate in that <laughs> right now is a sense of ease 
in saying it is okay to be scared right now. It is okay to feel anxious. It is okay to be freaked out. It is okay to be like, oh my gosh, I just don't know what I'm going to do with the kids at home for three weeks. I'm going to tear my hair out. Um, that is, all of those are completely valid and you are not crazy for feeling that way. Um, I think it's important that people know that it's okay to feel scared or anxious. It's not okay to let that lead you into panicking behaviors. You have to kind of reel yourself in a little bit. Um, there was a great quote I read recently, and I'm, I cannot recall the name of the person. Your, your uh, listeners can Google it. Um, here's the quote. It's from um, M. Levitt. Everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist. Everything we do after will seem inadequate. And there's sort of a funny catch-22 here. If, we, if it turns out that there ends up not being a lot of cases in the United States and it's not, lots and lots of people don't die, that won't mean we overreacted. That will mean we done good. <laughs> it will mean we succeeded. And it's, you know, public health is really weird. It's invisible when, you know, you don't think about the fact that there aren't diseases all around you. And so it's, you know, it's hard to, to celebrate that. And I think people need to understand that as well. Um, that what is a success is the absence of anything. <laughs> so, um, and I also think it's important that people, if they don't feel as though they're getting clear communication from uh, their authorities, from the federal government and from the state government, they're not going crazy. They aren't. The, this is one of the poorest responses I have ever seen. And I'm not saying that to be political in any way. I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm just saying that there have been lots of mistakes made at the federal level and the communication has been extremely poor, has not been transparent, has not been clear. And if people are feeling lost and confused and frustrated because of that, you are justified. And so it makes sense that you're looking for good information from somewhere. I hope that that changes soon. It looks like it might be starting to change. It looks like it's starting to change. And I, and I hope that we start getting clear, honest, transparent, accurate communication. Um, but if you, if you feel like you're not getting it so far, you're not alone. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that's most frustrating for parents. Like they don't, they don't know they have a new baby at home or they have toddlers. And does this mean, like, okay, we're all home from school. Does this mean we have to stay in our house for the next two to three weeks? Does this mean we have to stay in our house for the next two to three months? Does this mean, what does being at home mean? Does it mean that we can't leave our house, that we can't leave our yard? Um, can we have playdates with people who have also been limiting their, their exposure to other people? What, what does this look like on a practical and real level? And it's the, the pro there are not simple answers to any of those questions. And a lot of them are going to vary by person. Um, I, my husband is taking a medication that is severely immunocompromising. And when we were unable to order our groceries online, like you normally do, because it was backed up, I volunteered to go and get the groceries, even though he's always the grocery shopper. Um, he became the grocery shopper about 10 years ago when I went to Costco and saw the tomatoes were on sale and bought three slats of 24 tomato cans. And then two weeks later, when I went back to Costco, I'd forgotten and saw that the tomatoes were on sale. And we were, we were eating tomatoes for a couple years. And ever since then, my husband's done the shopping because me and shopping are just not, we don't mix well. But I did the shopping this time because, you know, it's uneasy. He, he feels anxious being out and about right now, and there's good reason. I think the most anxiety-inducing thing right now is we don't know how many cases are here. The, the, the single biggest issue 
is the testing is a complete mess. There's no way to sugarcoat it. It is, it is, you cannot overstate how badly the testing situation has been bungled. And the fact that we have so few tests available, so few people being tested, we have no idea how much of, of this disease is transmission is being transmitted through our, our, our communities um, and where it is. And until we have that data, you can only make so much of an informed decision because it's not informed. Um, so I think a lot of people are going to have to make those decisions for themselves, things they should take into account. How at risk are you and your family members? The, the only good news right now is that kids are not much affected by this. Kids seem to be, I'm not saying that they can't get sick, but there's the, the mortality for children is the lowest of any other age group and they don't have severe symptoms. So that's the good news. <clears throat> we don't know if that changes how they transmit it. Um, obviously, if they're not coughing as much, they're not transmitting as much, but um, we, we don't know if they could be, if there's lots of kids getting infected that are simply not showing symptoms or transmitting it, we don't know yet. So there's still a lot of open questions, but I think for me personally, that gives me some sense of comfort to know that at least, you know, usually it's, you're always worried about your kids dying because it's always the kids are the vulnerable ones. And this is the one time that's not true. Um, on the other hand, my dad, who is 70, um, and my mom, who's 74 and has had multiple surgeries, and they're, they're not in bad health, but my dad has hypertension and um, diabetes, and my mom is, you know, she, you know, they both have some underlying conditions. They asked if we wanted to go out to dinner on Monday. And I said, let's wait and see. I, I didn't say yes or no. And he, I mean, he wasn't offended, but I said, you know, I don't know yet. I don't know. It changes every single day. I can't, he only asked me that yesterday, which was a Friday. And I don't even want to make decisions three days ahead because, you know, in that time I was at the grocery store today. I don't know. And so I think a lot of it is sit down and be honest with yourself. What kind of, how much of a risk taker are you? human beings are really horrible at assessing risk and that's, we can't do much about that, but we can sit down and try and think through it and say, how much risk am I willing to take on? I would say to take on less risk for older people around you than anyone else. Think about them first and in a way, let that be your benchmark. Who are the, the people over 60 in my community or in my family that I want to protect the most and then kind of use that as your model around which you do everything else. Should you take the kids to the playground? Well, if you're in Seattle, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you are in a small town in Kansas, eh, probably. If you are in, you know, I don't know, San Antonio right now, maybe the local like, nearby playground with some whites. You know, it, it's, it's going to vary. So I think some of that. Um, there's actually, I, I have to give a plug for a fellow journalist of mine, Melinda Winter Moyer, has been doing some great work. And she has an article on New York Times right now, New York Times Parenting, about what are the rules for playdates during the coronavirus crisis. And I, I recommend that article. It's a really great one to go through. And, you know, and, and I think one thing to keep in mind is there are no hard and fast rules. There just aren't. Because you can't make rules without data, and we don't have data. This is really helpful. And, you know, one of the things that I have found most challenging about this is I'm not seeing a whole lot of discussion in the middle. All of the discussion tends to be either, this is no big deal and really flippant and really like, I'm not really going to change anything. I'm still going to go do my thing. Like, sure, I'll wash my hands, but like just super nonchalant, really chill to like, 
we are quarantining on our in our house. I am not allowing things into the house. Anything that comes in that, that has to come in the house is wiped down with Clorox wipes. Like there, there are two extremes that I am seeing. Um, I'm seeing very, very little nuanced and kind of middle of the road conversation. Um, and so I'm, I am relaxing as you were talking. <laughs> so, so I am enjoying what you are having to say. Um, I mean, still taking it very seriously, but um, I, I, I personally am relaxing a bit as you were talking. I, one thing I, I, I was telling you guys stories before we got started on this podcast, and, and I didn't tell you the best part about my trip to the grocery store. I wish that I had visuals here because I would show it to you. I'm looking at the picture I took of the gentleman who was wearing a 3M full white hazmat suit with a mask, ventilator, goggles, gloves, and even his, his, his uh, shoes were in the little booties. Wow. That's probably overkill. Um, yeah. Now, the first thing I asked him, though, was, are you immunosuppressed? Because you know what? If, if he's a cancer patient and he lives alone and he needs food, he, that might be reasonable. Um, his answer was, I don't know. I'm not taking any chances. Okay, well, then he probably isn't. But, you know, I'm not going to make fun of him because it's scary. And, you know, if that's what it takes for him to feel like he has control over the situation, then so be it, you know? Um, he, I asked him to take a picture. Like, I didn't just walk up and, and you know, stick a camera in his face. Um, one of the things that's challenging about what you were just describing, humans are not good about sitting in the middle of uncertainty. We're good at fight or flight or freeze because fight or fight or freeze is, is freeze, excuse me, is programmed into our genetics. Like it is, you know, it's, it's in the, like, you know, in the lizard brain and we're good at, you know, I'm going to chill and hang back and just kind of watch this happen, whip out the lawn chair, pop some popcorn, you know, we're good at those. We're not good at the heightened, like the sustained heightened sense of vigilance. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is, is it's a sustained, it's like the hurry up and wait. Well, this is like hurry up and wait, tacked on over and over and over and over, right? It's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And, you know, our, our bodies are designed to have like this shoot of cortisol during like the panic moment and then to calm that down, right? And so we're in sort of this weird, our bodies don't know how to operate. Like our bodies aren't designed for this, literally are not biologically designed for this. So that tension between, I don't want to overreact and panic versus I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to chill out too much and get complacent. It's going to be a push pull. It's, you're, you're, it's going to be a mental game you're playing with yourself over the next several days because that's just we're, our bodies and our brains are not literally our, our hormones, our endocrine systems and our nervous systems and our brains are just not designed to sustain that sort of like, you know, background heightened vigilance level that you have in this situation. Yeah. So if you're feeling that like, am I overreacting? Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It doesn't matter because you know, if you are overreacting, okay, laugh at yourself later when you're alive. Cause Hey, you're still alive. You know, I mean, it's, <clears throat> so you know, I, I, it makes sense to feel that. And, and I, I think a lot of this is just validating how people feel. There isn't really a wrong way to feel right now. Um, the, the key thing is that in the midst of that, try to stop yourself anytime you, before you make a decision and say, am I making this decision based on a rational response to how I feel? Or am I making this decision because I'm feeling freaked out and panicked right now? Um, a good example is the toilet paper thing, okay? You, you know, you don't need to rush out and buy a toilet paper. And, and besides, what's the worst that can happen? You run out of toilet paper. Okay, 
So, you know, you've got a sink, right? With running water. And no, it might not be fun. Hop in the shower. Like, I'm not saying it's easy or fun, but you know, you're not going to die because you don't have toilet paper. Um, you know, and so I, you know, try to give some perspective there. Um, and, and think about, you know, the decisions that you're making and, and whether, you know, are, is that what is motivating that decision? And if that decision is motivated by, I'm a little bit paranoid, but not crazy paranoid. Okay, that's all right. That's fine. So, you know, it's, it's sort of trying to, you know, sometimes talking to your kids about it helps. I have found that I get calmer when I'm trying to explain it to my kid because I'm putting it in the language that he can understand. And that puts it in that language for myself. So, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people, you know, explaining it to your kids can help you too. Can you share a little bit about what you say to them? Yeah. Um, I, actually, there was something really funny that happened yesterday. <laughs> okay. Your kids are, how old are your kids? Nine. My kids are nine and five. One of them will be turning six soon. And um, I have to tell you this story because it was so cute. Yesterday we ordered pizza because we do, we do movie nights every Friday and we often order pizza. We always do popcorn. And my older son doesn't like to eat the crust. And so I usually eat his crust. So he ate his pizza. He had the crust and he came over and he said, here, mom. Um, he says, you can have it if you want. And I said, okay, thanks. And then, be, and then he went, wait, no. And I said, what? He says, coronavirus. And he took the plate away. <laughs> and I was like, darn it. I actually did want that crust, but that was a good lesson. I can't afford to let that lesson go by. So I was like, okay, go throw it in the trash. You know, like, I mean, it was, you know, it, it's, <clears throat> but it, but it was also, he said it casually. And I thought that was what was important is because he, he had, he had taken in the right message, which was caution, but not flipping out. And I was like, I, I, I have to reinforce this. <laughs> this is the right message. Um, but what I did was, <clears throat> uh, I think it was about a week ago. It was the first time one of them asked me, I think my, my older son was like, mom, what's coronavirus? And I said, well, coronavirus is the name. It, it's a type of virus. There's different types of viruses. I said, the corona means crown in Spanish. And it's called a coronavirus because it looks like it has a little crown on it. It's like a little king and queen germ. I said, it's a little round virus with a, with a crown on top. And I said, but there's one particular type that's new right now that we've never seen before. And it's, you know, causing disease in people and some people are scared about it. And then, you know, from there, I just kind of went on and I, <clears throat> I said, you know, we need to be extra cautious about uh, washing our hands really well and <clears throat> making sure that. Um, we're protecting other people. And of course they said, well, you know, can you die from it? Well, some people have died from it. Um, children are not dying from it much. Well, who is dying from it? Well, older people are more likely to die from it. So could grandmom and grandpop die? Well, if grandmom and grandpop are, are being careful and they're able to avoid it, then they're going to be okay. If they do get sick, it's possible that they could die, but it's not very likely because most of the people who get it are still surviving. So, I mean, I wasn't lying. But I'm also, you know, I'm not trying to hide what I'm saying. It's true that there's a risk, but it is also true that most people who get it, even over 80, still survive. So it's striking that balance between honesty. And I think some, a lot of it is part of your tone. You know, kids are smart. They're like dogs. They can sense that stuff, right? They can sense fear and anxiety. The more calm and, and relaxed you are in communicating the information, that's where they're taking their cues from. Um, there were some interesting studies done after 9-11 where they looked at how kids responded to 9-11. And what they found was in, in households where the family was not talking to their kids about it, but was having clear anxiety, the kids knew something was wrong 
And they were more freaked out than the kids in other places that were being talked to about it because they sensed that something was wrong and no one was telling them. Mm-hmm. And if no one's telling them what's going on and being honest about what can happen, they're, they've got crazy imaginations and their imagination will come up with even worse things that could happen. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize, you know, give your kids some credit, both in being able to take in the information and pick up on when things are, you know, when it's an an anxious time. I think that's a really good point too. And just helping support kids have, uh, have control, what you talked about, just like adults like to have control, kids like to have control too. And if you're sharing information with them and giving them ways that they can help their family, giving them jobs, for lack of a better word, of things to be responsible for, that is a tactic that works really well in our household. You know, can one of you is going to make sure that all of the shoes stay by the door? You know, one of you gets to make sure that we have enough soap in the soap dispenser. One of you gets to make sure um, that whenever anybody sneezes, if they don't do it the right way, that, you know, we get to make a big deal out of it. Like just kind of making it a little bit playful, but also helping them feel like they that we're, that we're not hiding it from them and making it more manageable. So that's, um, I think that's a really good point of, of where some of the hysteria comes from. And what we are seeing, Tara, with parents and how they're talking about this is especially newly postpartum families, especially families who are already immunocompromised and are not used to that, perhaps, um, if someone is already going through the hormonal roller coaster of trying to figure out how to manage life after having a baby, or having a new baby at home, and being nervous about all of those new feelings and all of those new emotions, and then now there's this pandemic put on top of that, in talking with all of the professionals that you have access to, have you had any interesting conversations about ways that someone who may be already isolated is finding some helpful measures for how to manage that particular part of this. If you're already isolated and possibly prone to um, mental instability or postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression or, or things like that, how they, can, how they can get some resources for themselves at this time. All excellent questions. I had postpartum depression myself. Um, and I have, I, like, even before I had postpartum depression, I have diagnosed depression, diagnosed anxiety, and diagnosed ADHD. So I get it <laughs> very much so. Um, I like to tell people that because I want them to take it seriously and, and understand it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to acknowledge it. Um, it's okay to say, you know, these are the, the, the disabilities that I have, and this is what I'm doing to manage them. Um, and I can still be a successful adult in doing that. And, and sometimes my disability interrupts and it, it causes issues for me. Um, so, I mean, the first thing, it sounds silly to say the first thing is admitting you have a problem, but I think acknowledging that, okay, this is, you know, my brain hormone, my, my, my hormones or my, my brain chemistry is going whack and I don't have control over that any more than I have control over whether I had cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or anything. So I think just acknowledging it's kind of the serenity prayer, you know, you, you, you know, accept the things that you cannot change and you look for the things that you can change. And sometimes you might have to spend some time thinking like, well, which category does this fit in? I, you know, you don't always have the wisdom to know the difference. You have to sit and think about it for a while. Um, so I think first, just acknowledge it. Second, 
build a support network. Focus on finding a support network. And that might be your personal family. That might be friends and neighbors. And it doesn't mean you invite everybody over because that's part of, the, that's part of what's so frustrating here, right? Um, social media is, we couldn't ask for anything better than social media right now. I mean, I think social media is going to keep a lot of people sane right now. Um, so finding social media groups, seeing if maybe some of the people in social media that you're friends with, do they want to do a Google Hangout or Zoom or FaceTime sometime? You know, you, you don't get to go out. When I was, when I was post, recently postpartum with my first, I had to go out almost every single day just to see a human being because I was going to go stir crazy. Um, my second was a little different because that was the one I had postpartum depression with and I was writing my book. So I don't recommend having a baby and writing a book in the same year unless you want to, unless you just, yeah, it, it was not a good, not a good situation. But, um, so I think, you know, looking for ways to develop your network that way. I think also the, the flip side of that is eliminating the toxic influences. There. So I just said, you know, bring in your family if they're helpful, but you know what? As much as you love your mother, if your mother is telling you how to do everything and she's not helping, you need to cut her off. And if you can't cut her off, ask your husband or your partner, your wife, whoever, you know, your, your, uh, if you're Polly or your three partners, what, you know, whatever it is, have them, you know, take point for you. I'm sorry. She can't talk right now. She's feeding the baby. I'm sorry. She can't talk right now. She's napping, you know, um, whatever it takes. Uh, to cut out the, the top, and I'm not saying it has to be mother, but I mean, you know, if it's, if it's the nosy neighbor next door who's trying to be helpful, you know, um, you have to lay down some boundaries or have someone help you lay down some boundaries because that can be just as damaging or more. Bring in the people who support you um, and cut out or at least hold at bay the ones, you know, it's not like you can hold off your, you know, your annoying sister forever, but you can say, you know what? I understand you're trying to help email me all your suggestions, you know, give them an outlet that they can do instead, you know, cause sometimes it's not that they're toxic. Maybe it's just that they're trying to help and they don't know how. And you know, they're just really freaking annoying <laughs> you know? so, or exhausting, right? Like the, the amount of energy people have is limited right now. So using that wisely. Support network, eliminating the toxic people. And then I think also one thing that might be helpful for a lot of people, create a schedule for yourself. And at the same time, give yourself permission to break it. So create a schedule that says like, okay, from 1 to 2 p.m., I'm going to watch my favorite Netflix show while I'm breastfeeding, <laughs> okay? And from 2 to 2.30, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get myself a snack. And from 2.30, you know, and, and I say, I'm, I'm making these really basic, you know, from, from, uh, from 2.30 to 4.30, I'm going to screw around on social media and, and, you know, wade into the mommy wars just for the fun of it. Uh, I'm going to spend some time on Sanctum Mommy laughing at other people or, you know, so, you know, and, and I notice how these are really low. Uh, th these are not like important things you have to do, but it's giving you a forced structure. And they're also the kind of things that, okay, if you're, if your half hour of laughing at people online gets cut short because the baby's crying, that's okay. <laughs> you know? So it's not that you're creating structure because you have to keep to it. It's to make you feel like you have a sense of control. Because that's what makes us feel so like we're going crazy is not having a sense of control and creating a schedule for yourself, even if you don't follow it, it gives you a sense of control and it lets you say, okay, well now I'm in control. So I'm also going to break this. I'm going to move this. Um, so I think that can also help. Um, and then I think finding ways to keep yourself busy while giving yourself time to rest is part of it. Um, what can you do to keep yourself busy? You know what? Uh, take pictures of your baby with your phone and, and mess around with the filters. 
Okay. I mean, do something, you know, um, take pictures that, you know, you can post on Facebook or if you don't want to post them on Facebook, you're just, you know, messing around making them fun. Right. Um, you know, dream up ways that look through your kitchen and, uh, you know, imagine different things, you know, smiley face things you can make when your baby moves to toddler and, and is able to start doing food. I mean, these are little silly things, but the point is to keep yourself busy. It's all keeping that balance of not giving yourself an obligation that you're going to feel bad for letting yourself down on, but giving yourself an opportunity to stay busy and occupied and involved and engaged to try and keep yourself from slipping down into that, you know, wallowing. And you know what? Sometimes you need to wallow too. So if you just need to sit down and cry, then curl up and cry. Acknowledge that it's okay to curl up and cry. You know, call, call if you have a partner, hopefully, who's supporting you or some other family member, have the partner support you if they can. Um, I mean, it's okay to be in survival mode, basically. And, and that it looks, different, it looks different for different people. One of the things you said when talking about toxic family, you, you mentioned in, you did mention, like, it's okay to bring in other support. You know, Ariel and I are both doulas, postpartum doulas. And, you know, one of the things that we've been saying to the families that we work with is, listen, we're working really hard to limit our own exposure so that we can still be here and present for you. Yes. Um, and do you, do you see, a, a, I'm not sure why I want to word this. Um, I feel like there's a little bit of a difference between folks who are paraprofessionals who understand like what is happening and, and who are minimizing their risk of exposure. Like, is there benefit to parents seeking out different routes of support than maybe what they would have considered previously from paraprofessionals like us? Um, I was with you until the very last sentence. I didn't understand what you were asking on that last one. Uh, Carol, can you help? For new families who are trying to mitigate risk, it's difficult to feel that the investment for hiring support in the postpartum period makes sense right now. And is, is there a way that you could speak to the fact that people like doulas or registered nurses who do care in home or, um, or, or newborn care specialists or people who understand the, the risks of working with immunocompromised people and normally on our day-to-day -day are already taking care of some of the, these basic precautions, but now are also taking additional precautions to make sure that we don't expose ourselves. Can you speak just a little bit to why we as paraprofessionals could be people who yes. okay. would be useful. Well, I think as a paraprofessional, when you are contacting these families, I think you need to preemptively bring up, hey, you know what? I know that right now everything is scary because this coronavirus outbreak is happening. So here's what I am going to do before I come to your house to make sure that I'm protecting you. Before I come into your house, I am going to use the hand sanitizer that is sitting in my car. I'm going to use a half dollar's worth because that's what Dr. Gregory Poland at Mayo Clinic recommends. And I'm going to rub it all over my fingers and I'm going to squeeze it underneath my fingernails and I'm going to get it all the way up to my elbows. I am going to make sure that I've changed my shirt from something that I wore before my previous person so that there's no germ sitting on my shirt. Um, if I have a mask that I can lend you and you feel more comfortable wearing one, I will bring one for you. Or if you prefer that I wear one so that I am protecting um, any germs from coming out of my mouth towards you. You don't want to wear a mask if you are, uh, a mask is not going to protect you if you are 
trying to avoid getting sick, but if you are the one with the germs, then it will stop you from transmitting them to other people. So you could volunteer. I'm going to wear a mask just so that, you know, if I cough unexpectedly or I sneeze or something, it goes into the mask. If you don't have a mask, wear a bandana and be a cowboy, right? <laughs> so, you know, if, if they want that, you can ask them if they feel comfortable. It might actually freak them out more if you wear a mask, you know, it, it depends on the person. Um, and then once I get in the house, you know, I'm going to wash my hands um, uh, because I've touched your doorknob and I don't know who has been outside and has touched your doorknob or your, or your doorbell, you know, and then once we get in there, um, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You, you list the things you're going to do. We're going to weigh the baby. You know, I'm going to wash my hands after I, you know, just before I pick up your baby to weigh them, I'm going to wash my hands or, you know, I think you should, it's not like you have to go through every single thing, but tell them what you're going to do and that what you're conscious of to convey to them. I know this is serious and I want you to know that I know it's serious and I am thinking of you and your health and safety above everything else. Um, and I, I think that will reassure them. It will also have an added benefit of the ones who aren't taking it seriously enough will then start taking it seriously because um, yeah. you are. Um, I mean, they're going to take their cue from you. And it's the same at risk of sounding a little, I hope this doesn't sound patronizing. It's the same thing as when you're talking to a child, they're going to pick up on your tone and your anxiety the calmer and more in control and relaxed and confident you feel and convey, that's going to communicate the same thing to them. Um, so I think that's, and, and at the same time, uh, it's okay to demand that of your friends and family too. Like if mom wants to come over and see the grandbaby, that's okay, mom, you can come over and see the grandbaby. But here's what you're going to do when you walk through that door. You're going to wash your hands. You're going to put this bandana around your face. You're only going to hold the baby for 15 minutes. You know, it, it's okay to say right now I'm going to, in this case, you're actually protecting mom more than you're protecting the baby, but you can pretend like you're protecting the baby if mom doesn't believe it. So <laughs> talk a little bit because you did write a really great article and we'll link to it about masks. And it's been a whole thing on Twitter, apparently that <laughs> you've gotten a lot of hate. The mask lobby is after me, man. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about actual, we know hand washing and we know hand washing for at least 20 seconds, um, but masks has, has been the second biggest thing that I've seen people doing. Can you touch on that briefly? Yes. It's, it's actually, it's fascinating to me. Here's what we know based on evidence. Based on the evidence, we don't have any data to support the idea that wearing an ordinary surgical mask out and about or in public will protect you from getting sick. Whether or not an N95 respirator mask will, which is what a lot of people were talking about, well, if you've special ordered it so that it fits your face and it's been approved by a material and safety hazards like professional who can make sure it's fitted to your face and they've made sure they've made all the adjustments to it and you've gone through the proper training to actually have it on and off when you need to and you're washing your hands every single time you you know go to reach for it when you take it off when you touch it by accident um and you're disposing of it immediately after using it after four okay sure go for it but i mean i think we know that's not going to happen i mean you know a friend of mine who recently was going through ppe training personal protection equipment training at our hospital more than half of them were making mistakes, not because they're screw ups, but because they're not in regular practice, which is why they were practicing. So they don't make mistakes on the floor. You know, this was, they, they were doing it before the disease got to their area to make sure they knew what they were doing. And these are professionals. So I think, you know, that's important to keep in mind. Now, when should you wear a mask? You should wear a mask if you're sick or if you have someone in the household who's sick. 
because what the mask does do is it can prevent their droplets from going you know, out to others. Um, and I think all of us, we try and practice good hygiene, coughing into your shoulder. I will often cough into my shirt. Like if I'm in public, I don't want to use my hands, but you can't really, you can't always sneeze into your shoulder. So I actually will lift my shirt out and sneeze onto my boobs. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's my way of trying to, you know, minimize how far my droplets go, right? Uh, I'll just have to shower before my husband and I, yeah, no, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so we make sure that... Um, you know, that's when it's useful. And there's a lot of shortage of masks right now. So if someone gets sick in the house and you don't have access to a mask, um, I really do recommend using a bandana. I mean, just, you know, if you have a bandana or a hair scarf of sorts, if you don't have that, heck, go look for an old t-shirt and cut it into a triangle. You know, the idea is to block those, I mean, no, the, the droplets are still going to get through cotton from a t-shirt, obviously. I mean, I'm not saying this is like a, you know, this is not like a, a do-it-yourself biohazard suit or anything, but <laughs> the idea is to kind of, you know, reduce the, like, spread of those droplets out. And if you sneeze, okay, go toss it in the laundry and get another one. So um, that's the main thing. Now, one thing that was interesting, and I, I have to mention this because if any of your readers go or listeners go and look at Twitter, they'll see that I've, I've engaged extensively, especially with people from Hong Kong. There is a question about whether or not if every single person were to wear a mask, that would reduce asymptomatic transmission. So transmission of the disease without having symptoms because you are contagious before you show symptoms. So if we had every single person in the United States wearing a mask, would that reduce the number of cases? We don't know. Um, if you ask someone in China or Hong Kong, they will say definitely. Um, but we don't actually have data to support that. And it's kind in the United States, as I tried extensively to explain to the people on Twitter, it's kind of a moot question because right now we have a shortage. And when we have a shortage, you know, we don't have 350 million masks to hand out to people, especially since those would have to be reused. I mean, it's not just 350 million masks, right? It's 350 million masks times however many days or half days that we're going through this. And we just don't have that. So it's important that those not be purchased and be left for the healthcare providers that need them and the clinics that need to have them on hand for sick people. So, you know, it, is, is that a good academic question? Okay, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to ask. What if every single American were wearing a mask? But it's not something we can seriously entertain because it's not, it's not practical right now. Yeah. I mean, my, I feel like you've given us so much just to chew on. Is there... If you could speak directly to parents right now who are closer to the side of panic than calm, mm -hmm. is there anything that you would want them to know um, just for these next weeks when most likely their school will be closed? If not now, then it will be closed soon, most likely. Um, do you have any, any information for them? <laughs> My best advice is do what you are able to do. I told Cole earlier that I'm seeing all these people on Facebook saying, you know, sharing homeschooling guidelines and homeschooling worksheets and schedules. And I'm all like, here you go, kid. Here's the charging cord. Don't mess it up. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I'm not going to try and pretend I'm going to be doing any homeschooling. If people can do that, or if it gives them a measure of control that's going to help them, more power to you. Um, it, it does go both ways. There was, I had an interesting experience last night on Facebook where I and some other moms were laughing 
at uh, this schedule that someone had created for COVID-19. And it was, it was all nice. Like it was like each hour planned out for, you know, the kids are going to work on, you know, no, no electronics, math homework or something, you know, and all of us were laughing. And then one woman came on there and said, you know what? I have a daughter who's immunocompromised. We are required to do total isolation. And this schedule is the first thing that's given me any measure of comfort because it feels like I can take control of the situation. I have something to do. So everyone deals with things differently. I mean, we were dealing with it by laughing at it because we knew there was no way that we could do anything close to that in our households. But another woman, that was what gave her comfort. So I can't give any kind of across the board thing like people should do this or should do that. What I can do is you should do what you can do. Um, you know, seek support where you can seek support. If, if it makes you feel better to do something that is ritualistic and may or may not have evidence behind it, but it's not harming anyone, then do that. I think this is not time to mock people for how they feel or how they're responding to things. You know, try to do things that are not going to harm other people. Buying 15, you know, months worth of toilet paper does harm other people. <laughs> um, but acknowledge that it's okay to be freaked out and you are going to take this as an opportunity to say, we're going to get through this. And when the zombie apocalypse comes, we will be hella ready. <laughs> Tara, thank you so much. I, uh, I appreciate everything that you have contributed to uh, our parenting culture already with your books. Would you like to talk about your books really quickly or where people can follow you on Twitter if they want to see what's happening with you? People can follow me on Twitter at my name. It's just at Tara, T-A-R-A Haley, H-A-E-L-L-E. Um, I have a Facebook page, not as active, but people can find that on Facebook with a search. Um, I, I have not updated my red wine and applesauce blog in a while, but if people are looking for older information, a lot of stuff on there is still relevant. Um, my books are, um, I co-authored with Emily Willingham, PhD, a developmental biologist and science journalist. She and I collaborated on a book called Informed Parent, The, the Informed Parent, a science-based guide uh, to the first four years. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of it because we don't give any advice whatsoever. We summarize the evidence to the best that we were able to. We let you know where the evidence is lacking. We tell you sometimes what we did. And then we leave it to you to figure out what to do because everyone's different, has different values, different levels of privilege, different financial circumstances, different geography, different faiths. You know, it's not my place to tell you what to do. Um, the other book um, is on vaccines. It's called Vaccination Investigation, The Science and History of Vaccines. And I, unfortunately, that one's kind of pricey. I tell people to check it out at the library or ask their library for it. It's a library binding book. Um, it's actually aimed at kind of upper high school level, but... I wrote it knowing that you were, there were going to be parents who were interested in it. And I discussed the, the, like it says, the science and history of vaccines. And I, what I like about the, what I did with it, two things. One, I made sure to include not just about the safety of vaccines, but how we got the safety of those vaccines. Because unfortunately, the safety we have today in vaccines is built on the mistakes of the past. And there were mistakes in the past. And so we talk about the, I, I talk about the mistakes of the past and how those informed future policy so that we could have the strict levels that we have today of safety and testing. Um, and then I also talk about the reasons that people have anxieties related to vaccines, the, the kind of cognitive tricks and biases that, are, that play around in our heads that cause us to question ourselves or to question science even when we, you know, aren't, you know, when we feel like we should know better. Um, I talk about that. So those are, those are the two books. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Forbes. Uh, I write lots of other places. Um, I do some stuff for New York Times Parenting, NPR, uh, Medscape, all over the place. <laughs> so. And I am so thankful that you were able to join us. Thank you so, so much. This was fun. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We hope that your next weeks are both interesting in the different things that you'll be covering inevitably and also that you are uh, as safe as you can be so thank you so much for taking some time with us yep thank you if you have questions about this episode please comment on our facebook page a swift moment podcast or at aswiftdoula.com where we will have links that were referenced in today's show thanks for listening take care <laughs>